Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You want the best and you've got it. The hottest man in the land. DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. And now, on with the show. friends. Thanks for joining us. This is episode five of the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. I'm Christian Swain and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. We hope you got to hear our first four episodes. If not, then stay right here anyway, because today's story can be taken in the latest of the series or on its own. A quick prologue at 222 5th Avenue South in Nashville, Tennessee, right in the heart of Music Row, sits the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum. The hall's website promises a walk through history, one that leads you from the earliest folk traditions to the music that thrills millions of fans today. Maybe it's time I took that walk. On March 27th, 2015, right before we started writing this episode, and I swear this is a coincidence, the Country Music Hall of Fame opened an exhibit, Dylan, Cash, and the Nashville Cats. The Bob Dylan-Johnny Cash exhibit will run through the end of 2016. There's a link in the show notes to the Hall's website and to a couple of reviews. It looks like they did a great job with it. But that walk, for me, will have to come later. Today... Together, let's walk with Bob and J.R. Alone, I'm walking down the line Walking down the line And I'm walking down the line My fate will be flying I tell about my troubled mind Walking down the line Walking slow and careful Well, I went down to the store, I got some brand new shoes I told him, make the leather tough, I gotta walk the blues Walk in the blues, I'm walking the blues all day, all day I'm wearing out my shoes, but I'm walking the blues away Walking the blues, walking in the shadows of giants Today's show will be our take on these two legends. And friends, give us your take. Let us know what you think. You can send your critiques and your questions. And we don't mind the occasional unhinged rant to rockandrollarchaeology.com. You can dig up more details on this episode, including the show notes and links to the artists and songs. As usual, you can find us on facebook.com backslash the RNRAP and follow us on Twitter at RNR Archaeology. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, and all the places you can find great podcasts. Thanks for all the incredible reviews on iTunes. It is very humbling. 
Now, here's something new. We want to encourage you diggers of rock and roll archaeology to tell us your stories and give us your feedback, suggestions, and unhinged rants. To make that easier, we have set up a voicemail at 650-822-ROCK. Call and leave us your rock stories, and you might be featured on a new series we're working on. Finally, a special shout-out to Harvey Ward, our winner of our book giveaway, Sam Phillips, the man who invented rock and roll, for subscribing to and sharing the podcast. Keep checking our social media pages for more fun giveaways. So let's get to it. Right now, this is Episode 5, The Ballad of Bob and J.R., Darkness at the break of noon Shadows, even the silver spoon The handmade blade, the child's balloon Eclipses both the sun and moon To understand you know too soon There's no sense We open in Newport, Rhode Island On the main stage at the 1964 Newport Folk Festival It's Saturday night, a lovely July evening And Pete Seeger is supremely annoyed with Johnny Cash Pete, who lived to the age of 94, he passed in January of 2014, was on the board of directors for the festival. Here at the midpoint of his long and eventful life, Seeger was a living legend in the folk music community, a man of parts, composer, performer, music historian, musicologist, humanitarian, educator, and a political activist, an outspoken leftist making a professional comeback after being blacklisted. Pete Seeger was one of many artists and writers who were victims of McCarthyism. An iconoclast and a rabble-rouser, and a patriot with family ties going back to the American Revolution. Pete sang at the White House in 1941 as part of the Concert for the American Soldier. He served honorably in the U.S. Army in the Pacific Theater during World War II. But service and patriotism didn't matter. It was guilt by association. Senator Joseph McCarthy and his allies nearly hounded Seeger out of show business. Pete and his popular folk group, the Weavers, were blacklisted, banned from radio and TV. Pete continued to speak out and to play live at any joint that would have him. It was 1968 before Pete returned to the National Airwaves when he famously sang Waist Deep in the Big Money on the Smothers Brothers show. It was back in 1942, I was a member of a good platoon. We were on maneuvers in Louisiana one night by the light of the moon. The captain told us to ford a river, that's how it all begun. We were knee-deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. By 1961, things loosened up a bit enough for John Hammond to sign Pete Seeger to Columbia Records. And it was a good signing. Pete moved vinyl for Columbia. Even without airplay, his records were hits. He made fine albums for children that sold well, too. That's where I heard my first Bob Dylan song. Pete is the spiritual father and grandfather to two generations of American folk singers and roots rockers. And although he wasn't feeling like it at that particular moment, Pete Seeger was a sweetheart of a guy, a true gentleman. So, back in Newport, 1964, Pete's introducing Johnny Cash, an established country star, playing his first show for a folk festival audience. Johnny had a reputation for blowing off gigs and recording dates. He was supposed to play the night before, but he got pilled up and missed the plane. Cash pleaded to get rescheduled. Pete Seeger reluctantly agreed, and now Pete had to make the introduction. He was, well, a bit sarcastic. Not his usual self. Ladies and gentlemen, the next performer was supposed to be on the program last night, but he couldn't get here. He was way out on the West Coast... And he found that uh, somehow you can't get from Nevada to Newport, Rhode Island in one day. 
But he did get here tonight. He's a songwriter and a singer, and I think many of you have heard him before. It's Johnny Cash. <laughs> I taught the weeping willow how to cry And I showed the clouds how to cover up the clear blue sky And the tears I cried for that woman are gonna flood you big river And I'm gonna sit right here until During I the run-up to the Newport show, John was nervous And that meant, even more than usual, he was gobbling pills the excellent rock writer Robert Hilburn, author of Johnny Cash, The Life, takes up the story. He didn't look good with his drawn face and his unfocused manner. He resembled the man on a wanted poster. As much as he wanted the folk audience endorsement, he was so doped up that he came across as distant, almost condescending, as he looked out at a sea of mostly college kids. But Johnny was in fine voice that night. Strong and authoritative, according to Hilburn. And the kids loved it. Hilburn again. These college students had been listening to Cash songs for years, especially the Sun ones, and they welcomed a bit of rock and roll flash and aggression into the show. John started to loosen up, to settle down. Four songs in, he tried some banter, cracked a joke, and then he introduced this gem. No, I don't drink anymore. I don't drink any less, but I don't drink any more. Um, no water. Had some water last time I was here. I don't know what it run off of. But got a special request from a friend of ours to do a song tonight, and I'm very honored. I ain't never been so honored in my life. I'm so honored. I can't. Hey, Bob. Our good friend Bob Dylan would like to do one of his songs, and. Uh, We've been doing it on our shows all over the country and trying to tell the folks about Bob that uh, we think he's the best songwriter of the, the age since Pete Seeger. Sure do. Well, it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, gal, if you don't know by now. It ain't no use to sit and wonder why, gal I can't hear you anyhow With the cover of Dylan's Don't Think Twice, It's Alright, everything gelled. It all started to work. Johnny's career had cooled off in recent years, but Newport 64 put him right back in it, and with a new and bigger audience. I'm traveling on And now, at last, enter Bob Dylan. He's come a long way since we met him in Greenwich Village last episode. He landed a major record deal with Columbia. He's released three albums and a fourth is on the way. He took the 1963 Newport Folk Festival by storm. That performance is already the stuff of legend just one year later. And he's evolving, fast becoming the literary and musical voice that will be remembered long after all of us are gone. And it turns out, he is a big Johnny Cash fan. Robert Shelton wrote one of the best Bob Dylan biographies, No Direction Home, The Life and Times of Bob Dylan. Shelton's book, Bob's 2004 Autobiography, Chronicles, and Martin Scorsese's Tour de Force documentary, also titled No Direction Home, are the primary sources for our discussion. Shelton wrote a moving account for the first time Cash and Dylan meet. Cash was the real thing, off an Ozark farm, tough as rawhide, tender as raw flesh. Cash was also a sophisticated man who would walk the line in several music worlds. Authenticity is currency for folk music fans, and Johnny Cash was indeed the real thing. That was obvious to the young crowd at Newport and to young Bob Dylan. Back to Shelton's account. Cash, whose craggy, granite-hewn exterior made him look tough all the way through, was deeply touched by his acceptance. 
He'd been a big country star, and then hard living had nearly done him in. He was beginning that long march toward stardom again, and he was filled with his own fears, mostly of his own self-destructiveness. To show his appreciation, he gave Dylan one of his own guitars. Among country artists, the gift of a guitar is the highest possible tribute. The guarded, mysterious, ultra-cool Bob Dylan was so elated he jumped up and down on his hotel bedroom like a little kid. The Dylan Cash friendship would span almost 40 years to Johnny's death in 2003. That big eight wheel rolling down the track means your true love and daddy ain't coming back. I'm moving on. I'll soon be gone. You were flying too high for my little old sky, so I'm moving on. That big loud whistle as it blew and blew said hello to the Southland. We're coming to you and we're the road to Newport 64 was a long one for Johnny Cash. It started out unpaved in Kingsland, Arkansas on February 26, 1932. J.R. Cash was the fourth of seven children born to Ray and Carrie Cash, the archetypal middle child, a dreamer and a loner, with an aching, never-satisfied yearning for his father's approval. Ray and Carrie were scrambling to survive and feed their kids in the midst of the Great Depression. Salvation came with a New Deal program that staked Ray and Carrie to some uncleared acreage in a tiny wooden farmhouse in Dias, Arkansas. It was a hard scrabble, tough life, but there was land to work, and Ray, Carrie, and all the children over the age of six worked it from daybreak to nightfall, six days a week. The Cash family scraped by, and there was music every Sunday at church. In the evenings, Carrie would sing and play gospel songs on a Sears catalog guitar and on a piano the family bought secondhand. J.R. sang hymns on the two-and-a-half-mile walk into town, sometimes with his next older brother Jack, but more often by himself. A small, battery-powered radio was a family gift at Christmas one year, a, a real luxury. And J.R. listened avidly to gospel shows and to the country stations, broadcasting powerful AM signals that blanketed multiple states. But heartbreak and bitter loss were not merely words in the Jimmy Rogers and Hank Williams songs young J.R. heard on that battery-powered radio. Jack Cash was two years older than J.R., a golden child, handsome, charismatic, and beloved in the community, his father's favorite. Jack was headed into the ministry, a prospect that positively thrilled Carrie Cash. Jack was especially kind and attentive to J.R. Perhaps he sensed his dreamy misfit of a younger brother needed the love and encouragement. Saturday morning, May 13, 1944, 12-year-old J.R. begged Jack to go fishing with him. But Jack picked up an odd job and went to the high school wood shop to fashion some fence posts. The family needed the three dollars. Robert Hilburn picks up the story. J.R. went to the fishing hole, but his heart wasn't in it. He felt restless. He stood up after a couple of hours and headed home. That's when he saw the mailman's car coming towards him with his father in it. As soon as he saw his father's ashen face, he knew something bad had happened. Jack had been using a table saw with no blade guard to cut some oak logs into fence posts. The blade ripped into him, nearly cutting the boy in half. Stunned and bleeding, Jack tried to push his intestines back into his abdomen as he staggered outside. He was in the hospital, alive but unconscious, when J.R. and his father arrived. Jack Cash was young and strong, and he hung on in agony for a terrible week before he finally succumbed. Hilbert once again. In his increasing loneliness and grief, J.R. started writing down his thoughts, sometimes in the form of a poem, a short story, or even a song. He found he loved to express himself in words. The writings reflected a darkness that would appear in Cash's music throughout the years. 
About a year after Jack's death, JR started learning the guitar from a neighbor. Ray scoffed, but Carrie encouraged him. One morning, Carrie heard her adolescent son singing hymns as he worked in the yard. She was startled to hear his sweet, boyish tenor had changed to the smoky baritone that was to become famous around the world. Although bright and well-read, J.R. was a mediocre student in high school. He graduated without a clue about what to do next. He had it with working on a farm. That much he knew. I was toting my pack along the dusty Winnemucca Road When along came a semi with a high-end canvas-covered load If you're going to Winnemucca Mac with me, you can ride And so I climbed into the cab and then I settled down inside He asked me if I'd seen a road with so much dust and sand And I said, listen I've traveled every road in this here land. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. JR already had a restlessness and fascination with travel that would stay with him his entire life. For a poor southern boy with an itch to see the world, the next step was obvious. In July of 1950, 18-year-old J.R. Cash became Airman John R. Cash. He took the longest trip of his life to that point to Lackland Air Force Base near San Antonio for basic training. Airman Cash filled out and grew up. On a weekend foray to a roller skating rink in San Antonio, he met a pretty vivacious young woman, Vivian Liberto. After bumping into her, he blurted out, Call me Johnny. He'd never been called that before in his life. Shy and at a loss for words, Johnny started singing to her as they skated around in circles together. Vivian was charmed, and the two began a long courtship. Like all trainees, John took numerous aptitude tests. He excelled at them, and he got a coveted boasting as a communications specialist in Landsberg, Germany. John had left Dias filled with self-doubt and awkwardness. He was an Arkansas hayseed going up against Sharp City boys. Winning a plum assignment and winning the heart of Vivian shored up the young man's confidence. John visited Dias before shipping out. Carrie cried and hugged her boy, tall and handsome in his Air Force blues, and even Ray offered up a rare congratulatory handshake. Not long after John arrived in Landsberg, he and a buddy saw a gritty, low-budget flick at the base theater called Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison. Around that same time, he heard this song, Crescent City Blues, on the barracks radio. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling round the bend. And I ain't been kissed, Lord, since I don't know when The boys in Crescent City don't seem to know I'm here Johnny Cash was not one to let the facts get in the way of a good story. He would later claim he wrote Folsom Prison Blues right then and there. He would actually write the song some three years hence in Memphis. But the seed was planted. John decided he had something to say, and music was how he would say it. John did well in the Air Force, but when his date came in 1954, he took his discharge, married Vivian, and settled in Memphis. come back to Johnny Cash and the landmark recordings he made at Sun Records, but first we'll head north to Minnesota and check in on a young Robert Allen Zimmerman. Beatty and Abe Zimmerman were fretful in that funny, poignant way that so many middle-class American parents, like my parents, would wonder and worry about their teenage son. They wondered and worried about their Bobby. 
their doted-upon firstborn, their cherubic boy with the golden locks, had gone rock and roll. And he had all the accessories, the rock and roll 45s, the Harley Davidson, the black leather jacket, the guitar slung across his back. Hey, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? The small, close-knit Jewish community in Hibbing, Minnesota, why, they had never seen the like when Bobby Zimmerman's rock and roll band, The Golden Chords, had the plug pulled on them by the principal at the Hibbing High School talent show. Well, it was the talk of the town. Bobby slipped behind his desk on Monday like nothing happened, showing the cool detachment that was central to his character. But that cool he copped from Marlon Brando and James Dean. That was only part of what was going on with him. As a boy and as a young man, Bobby was not a talker or a joiner. He was a listener, an intent observer. That bored detachment was camouflage. He took in everything. Oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from is called the Midwest. I start and brought up there the laws to abide. And that the land that I live in has got on its side. And by the time he was a high school junior, he knew he just had to get out of Hibbing. No hard feelings, just time to go. He not busy being born is busy dying, he would write a few years later. And staying in Hibbing was just being busy dying. In later years, folks who helped Bob out would be hurt and angry when Bob didn't make a point of thanking them once he became famous. And some of them had good reason to feel that way, but it was not out of meanness or spite. Really, it was just Bob. No direction home. Don't look back. Busy being born. While still a teenager in Hibbing, he started fooling around with stage names. At first, he used his middle name, going by Robert Allen. But soon that morphed into Bob Dylan. D-I-L-L-O-N. Robert Allen sounded like a name for a used car salesman. But Bob Dylan, well, he liked the sound of that. And Bobby Zimmerman loved westerns on television. Gunsmoke, with its iconic character Sheriff Matt Dillon, premiered on CBS in 1955. Bob left Hibbing in the fall of 59 for the University of Minnesota. In Chronicles, his 2004 autobiography, Bob writes, The first time I was asked my name in the Twin Cities, I instinctively and automatically, without thinking, simply said, Bob Dillon, D-Y-L-A-N. In 1962, he changed it legally. And no, it probably had nothing to do with the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas. At least not at that time. The Thomas connection was made later. Somewhat unexpectedly, Bob would write, somewhat elliptically in Chronicles. Nothing suggests that Thomas's poetry was important or influential to him early on. Young Bobby was a voracious reader, but pulp fiction paperbacks, especially cowboy stories, were more his speed. No, God, no, he told the reporter in Chicago in 1968. I've read some of Dylan Thomas's stuff, and it's not the same as mine. He pleaded with his biographer, Robert Shelton, to debunk the alleged Dylan Thomas connection. And yet the myth persists. You even hear it and read it from people who know him. And that's fine. That's how it goes with Bob Dylan with every aspect of his character and his art. He's an observer and a storyteller, not a teacher, certainly not a prophet or the voice of anybody's generation. He wants you to draw your own conclusions, and there are no wrong answers. If you wish to see him as the literary descendant of Dylan Thomas, well, 
He's not inclined to go out of his way to correct you on that. And another myth busted. Folsom Prison Blues was not the first hit single by Johnny Cash in the Tennessee 2 on Sun Records. It was this song, Cry, Cry, Cry. Everybody knows where you go when the sun goes down. I think you only live to see the lights uptown. I wasted my time when I would try, try, try. Cause when the lights have lost their glow, you cry, cry, cry. Boom, chicka, boom. It's a flat rompin' job, that old clickety-clack rhythm Johnny wrote in May of 1955 to one of his old Air Force pals. It's going to be out in two or three weeks. That old clickety-clack rhythm. That old testament baritone. Simple, powerful storytelling. The trademarks of Johnny's son recordings. With his sense of the market and his little kid enthusiasm during recording sessions, Sam Phillips was the perfect mentor for Johnny. Cry, Cry, Cry was written at Sam's urging. He wanted a good old country tearjerker as a counterweight to the A-side, Johnny's rockabilly travel song, Hey Porter. Then Sam had the boys rev up the tempo a bit and give it the old boom chicka treatment. So doggone lonesome, another country tearjerker was the follow-up. The B-side was Folsom Prison Blues. John's rewrite of Crescent City Blues. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around the bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison. And time keeps dragging on. In 2011, Nicholas Davidoff published a superb book in the country of country, A Journey to the Roots of American Music. As I considered what to say about Folsom Prison Blues, about Johnny, about how it all fits together, well, I just kept coming back to this book. Cash aroused an audience, not in the overly sexual way Elvis did, but with something darker and more disturbing. I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Elvis was pretty. Cash was the first punk rocker. Hey, get rhythm. When you get the blues, come on, get rhythm. When you get the blues, get a rock and roll feeling. Like the punkers who came along a generation later, Johnny and the boys had plenty of rock and roll attitude, but they were not accomplished musicians. Those sun recording sessions were tedious. Many hours, dozens of takes. Get rhythm was a catchphrase to Sam's, basically his way of saying, Come on, guys. So Sam Phillips provided a tagline for the chorus, and an energetic shoeshine boy working a corner in Memphis gave Johnny the storyline. Songs were where you found them. Davidoff again. Backstage, Cash and Carl Perkins got to talking about what it was like to be away from your wife. With pretty young women everywhere you looked, a man might give in to temptation, Perkins said. Not me said Cash. I walk the line. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine, I walk the line In 1958, big changes came for the big country star Johnny Cash. He left Sun Records for Big Money at Columbia. And Johnny, Vivian, and their four young daughters moved from Memphis out to Southern California. And out on the road, he started popping pills. MF 
amphetamines at first, but in later years, Johnny would take elaborate cocktails of drugs to get up and to come down afterwards. Anyone who's had the unhappy experience of spending time around a speed freak knows what comes next. Johnny would whipsaw through wild mood swings. He threw weird tantrums, trashed hotel rooms, and his love for pranks and practical jokes took on a mean, sadistic aspect. Nicholas Davidoff once more. He was so wired that he went days without sleeping. His weight fell from 220 to 140 pounds, and his skin turned a sullen gray, and his eyes burned out of his wasted face like black marbles, and his songwriting had faltered badly. Johnny was still a big concert draw, but his records no longer dominated the charts, and he was increasingly erratic, missing dates and barely keeping it together when he did make it. In 1961, he started performing duets with June Carter, funny, lanky, strikingly beautiful, a successful singer, actress, and comedian, one of the Carter family country music royalty. Johnny Cash and June Carter were immediately drawn to each other. They began a long courtship slash affair, both of them knowing it was wrong, both of them knowing good people would be hurt. Sounds like something right out of a country song, doesn't it? I fell into a ring of fire I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire It would be years before he quit the pill-popping, but Johnny moderated his drug use around June, and he wanted to be around June. For her part, June would find his stash and flush it periodically. Johnny came back to Earth somewhat and started looking around for fresh ideas, new influences to revitalize his music. In the spring of 62, Columbia's John Hammond sent him a promo copy of a new album for a newly signed folk singer. Johnny loved it. He wrote Hammond a gracious thank you note, and he played the hell out of that first Bob Dylan album. There is a house down in New Orleans. They call the rising sun. And it's been the road. For his part, Bob Dylan didn't care much for that first self-titled album. It was recorded in just three short sessions over a couple of days in November of 61. And then there was a five-month lag between the sessions and the release in March. Eleven traditional folk songs and two originals, Talk in New York and Song to Woody. Hey, hey, Woody Guthrie, I wrote you a song About a funny old world that's coming along Seems sick and it's hungry, it's tired and it's torn. It looks like it's a dying and it's hardly been born. A pair of tributes to the man who was the reason Bob Dylan came to New York in the first place, Woody Guthrie. That first summer away from home in Minneapolis near the University of Minnesota campus, Bob was exposed to the deep roots of rock and roll. Country storytellers like Hank Williams and Jimmy Rogers, some of the original bluesmen, Robert Johnson, Charlie Patton, and Huddy Ledbetter. And folk music. It just seemed more complete, more satisfying than the rock and roll he grew up on back in Hibbing. He sold his electric guitar and amp and bought an acoustic and the now-famous harmonica brace. He began performing as a folk singer at coffee houses, pizza parlors, street corners, wherever. A young drama student named Flo Kastner took Bob over to her brother's house one afternoon, and they listened to his collection of Woody Guthrie songs. An excerpt from Bob Dylan's book, Chronicles. Guthrie had such a grip on things. He was so poetic and tough and rhythmic. The songs themselves were really beyond category. 
They had the infinite sweep of humanity in them. A great curiosity respecting the man had also seized me. I had to find out who Woody Guthrie was. Bob Dylan lasted one school year at the University of Minnesota. He dropped out in late spring of 1960. Like a character in Jack Kerouac's On the Road, that summer he drifted, hitchhiking with his guitar and his well-thumbed copy of Woody Guthrie's book, Bound for Glory. He spent a few weeks in Gallup, New Mexico, then on to Denver to soak up the folk music scene there, Chicago for a spell, and then finally he hitchhiked on into New York City, arriving in late 1960. Rambling out of the wild west, leaving the towns I love the best. Thought I'd seen some ups and downs till I came into New York town. People going down to the ground, buildings going up to the sky. He roamed and rambled, followed his footsteps, and always, always observed. Visited museums, browsed in libraries, hung out with hookers and junkies in Times Square. And he caught a bus out to Morristown, New Jersey, to the Greystone Psychiatric Hospital, and introduced himself to Woody Guthrie. Huntington's disease is a genetic disorder, a degenerative disease of the central nervous system. Back then, patients with Huntington's, like 49-year-old Woody Guthrie, were warehoused, put away in locked-down mental hospitals. Woody always asked me to bring him cigarettes, rally cigarettes. Usually I'd play him his songs during the afternoon. Woody was not celebrated in this place, and it was a strange environment to meet anybody, least of all the true voice of the American spirit. The visits with Woody Guthrie at the Greystone Hospital galvanized young Bob Dylan. He set out to conquer the Greenwich Village folk scene. This fierce ambition put Bob at odds right away with some of the folk purists in the village, a foreshadowing of events a few years later when Bob went electric. Robert Sheldon writes that Dylan pounded on endless doors in New York starting in early 1961. It took him about six months to climb the performing ladder and start getting featured spots at the better clubs. He met John Hammond briefly at a recording session for the folk singer Carolyn Hester, on September 14, 1961. Two weeks later, Robert Shelton's New York Times review of a show at Gertie's Folk City in Greenwich Village came out. Bob and his girlfriend, Suze Rotolo, read it over and over. Hammond read it, too. A couple days later, he signed the 20-year-old folk singer to a five-year contract with Columbia Records. The first album barely made a ripple, but starting in 1962, things started to move fast, real fast for Bob Dylan, and for the larger society he was beginning to take notice of and sing about. And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain, you're gonna fall. As promised, has maintained the closest surveillance Whoa, of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. For 13 unbearably tense days in October of 1962, the world held its breath and hoped for a peaceful resolution to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Years later, it was revealed the U.S. military was just one notch away from launching a full-scale nuclear attack. The Soviet Union was at similar high alert the whole time. For nearly two weeks... The doomsday clock was stuck at ten seconds to midnight. Never before, and never since, has the world come so close to nuclear Armageddon. In the end, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev backed down, but it was clear the Cold War rivalry between the USA and the USSR 
had entered a dangerous new phase. And Johnny Cash was about to get an advanced look at it. At home, Johnny had his own Cold War. His drugged-up recklessness and his affair with June Carter were tearing his family apart. Vivian Cash was furious and no longer willing to keep up appearances for the sake of the girls who were frightened of their zonked-out, unpredictable father. The USO asked Johnny to join a tour of U.S. military installations in the Far East. Starting in late October, home life was unbearable, so Johnny jumped at the chance. Johnny played up to six shows a day, and he spent many hours visiting with soldiers. And he sensed an anxious mood in the ranks. A crisis in Cuba had just ended, and at bases throughout the Far East there were ominous rumors of a new war brewing in a country most Americans had never heard of up to that time, Vietnam. Back in 1958, Johnny started playing free concerts for prisoners, something he would do regularly throughout his career. As he played for the troops in the fall of 1962, he heard and saw and felt the same wild enthusiasm the same affection that had so moved him during the prison shows. But this time, he sensed there was a lot more going on here than just over-amped guys who were starred for entertainment. And it changed him. Robert Hilburn again. Looking into the faces of the young soldiers, Cash felt he was summarizing in his music the things they both believed in. He knew he would always have to answer to the commercial demands of a music career, but he also began to accept that his personal destiny was uh, tied to something more challenging and rewarding. Hilburn nails it here. Johnny's best songwriting was already behind him, but he was able to imagine another path. Back home, he would reinvent himself as an interpreter of songs by other writers and as a musical advocate for the forgotten, for the marginalized. Where black is the color, where none is the number And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it and I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing It's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard And it's a hard, it's a hard In May of 1962, Suze Rotolo finally gave in to her parents and agreed to go to Italy to study art. She cleared out of the tiny West Village flat she shared with Bob and boarded a ship. Lonely, miserable, and incredibly productive, Bob toured hard and wrote and recorded his follow-up album, The Freewheel and Bob Dylan. Suze returned in early 63 just as he was wrapping it up. Freewheeling with its iconic cover photo of Bob and Sue's walking arm-in-arm down a Greenwich Village street was finally released in May of 1963 to huge critical acclaim. Sales were good, but nothing special. Not at first, anyway. But just one month later, Peter, Paul, and Mary released their cover of Blowing in the Wind. It was an instant worldwide smash. The biggest selling folk song of all time. A million copies in the first ten weeks. Record buyers soon turned their attention to the guy who wrote the song. How many roads must a man walk down Before they call him a man How many seas must a white dove sail 
were the songs that established him as the voice of his generation, someone who implicitly understood how concerned young Americans felt about nuclear disarmament and the growing movement for civil rights. That's a quote from Janet Maslin of the New York Times. Here's Bob Dylan's response in Chronicles to all that voice of a generation talk. Screw that. As far as I knew, I didn't belong to anybody then or now. But the big bugs in the press kept promoting me as the mouthpiece, spokesman, or even conscience of a generation. That was funny. All I'd ever done was sing songs that were dead straight and express powerful new realities. Dead straight. Powerful new realities. I, I do sympathize with Dylan's angry dismissal. I mean, come on. Voice of a generation? Who would want that kind of hype and pressure? But... That being said, it's impossible to dismiss the power of his expression, the potency of the language that he used. It was undeniably something very special, something completely new. Oxford Town, Oxford Town, everybody's got their heads bowed down. Sun don't shine above the ground, ain't going down to Oxford Town. Oxford Town Guns and clubs followed him down All because his face was brown Better get away from Oxford Town In the fall of 1962, after a long series of court battles, an African-American student named James Meredith enrolled at the University of Mississippi in Oxford. He was assisted capably in his legal fights by an NAACP attorney, Medgar Evers. Two people died in the riots in Oxford the night before he started classes, so the National Guard was called in to keep order and protect Meredith. In just two minutes, Dylan's song Oxford Town celebrates Meredith's quiet courage and issues a searing indictment of the racist culture and politics of Mississippi, and without polemics or preaching, it simply tells the story. Bob Dylan was already starting to write opaque, poetic, and beautifully complex lyrics. Over the years, he has introduced fresh idiom and new metaphors into the English language, the highest contribution a writer can make. But some of his most powerful work is simple storytelling in plain language. Peppered at times with sarcasm and dark humor, Bob's hero, Woody Guthrie, would approve. But it ain't him to blame. He's only a pawn in our game The deputy sheriffs, the soldiers, the governors get paid And the marshals and cops get the same But the poor white man's used in the hands of them all like a tool He's taught in his school. On June 12, 1963, the civil rights attorney Medgar Evers was gunned down in his driveway in Jackson, Mississippi. Bob performed his response only upon, in their game, the edge of a cotton field outside Greenwood, Mississippi on July 6, 1963. The audience was about 200 black Mississippians and a couple dozen members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. At enormous personal risk, these young people came south to register African-American citizens to vote. The SNCC sent word north, and Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger, and the actor, folk singer, Theodore Bickell came south to lend moral support and to drum up some media attention. Only a pond was riveting to this small crowd into the crowd of 250,000 who heard Bob play it a month later, the March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of his dream. 
It cut deep with its premise that the man who murdered Medgar Evers was just the last link in a long chain. Not blameless, but not the real villain either. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. His next album, The Times They Are Changing, came out in January 64. The title track, Bob's Anthem for the Civil Rights Movement, is defiantly optimistic. But the overall stark, somber tone of the album reflects the profound shock and despair Bob Dylan and millions of other Americans experienced on November 22, 1963, when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. Only Bob knows for sure, but it seems like the Kennedy assassination was an emotional trigger. Put it this way, I don't think he was the only person in America then who felt wounded inside and disheartened, who felt the need to turn away, to turn inward. His fourth album, released in August 1964, was titled, appropriately enough, Another Side of Bob Dylan. Bob called it his first album without any finger-pointing songs. The songs are deeply, achingly personal, and for the first time, touches of electric instrumentation are heard. Bob had moved on from topical songs that commented on current events. He was sketching on a different canvas now, commenting on love, hope, fear, and frailty, the human condition. And for that, he needed a new palette, deep contrasts and bold colors. And now, to close out our show today, we skip ahead a bit and end up back where we started, at the Newport Folk Festival. It's one year later, summer of 1965. In 63, the Newport Festival introduced Bob Dylan to the world. In 64, the festival introduced Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash to each other. In 1965, Bob Dylan did a little introducing of his own to the festival. Dress so fine, do the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you, people call, say beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were off. I'm kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now you don't talk so loud Now you don't seem so proud About having to be scrounging Your next meal How does it feel? How does it feel? To be without Newport 65, Bob played a mix set. Solo renditions of his folk songs and newly written rock songs in front of a band. Some will tell you the audience was outraged and he got booed off the stage, but that's a load of crap. I've watched that show repeatedly, and yes, there were boos and catcalls, but you can also see and hear that most of the crowd loved it. Bob had confounded expectations and surprised his fans once again. And that was a good thing. This wasn't Bob Dylan selling out by going electric. Here we see another side of Bob Dylan, all right. We see the true side of Bob Dylan. Now, I love the early folk records, and they provide this great window we can look through and learn about 1960s America. I hope we accomplished a little of that with today's show. 
But this is the real stuff right here in 1965. This is where Bob puts it all together. The big sound and rock and roll attitude of his teenage years. The poetic imagery and the storytelling he honed as a folk singer. These elements are now integrated and electrified. It was a shot heard round the rock and roll world. Sharp, observant rockers on both sides of the Atlantic. Songwriters who were looking to take this new music to new places. They noticed. Oh yeah, they noticed. Some kind of way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion Come on in You'll not see nothing like the songs that inspired him, Bob was now making music beyond categories like folk or rock or country, something with the infinite sweep of humanity to it, or as I like to put it, rock and roll for grown-ups. And Bob Dylan went into creative overdrive. In 14 months, starting in early 65, he would write, record, and release, bringing it all back home. Highway 61 Revisited, and the double album Blonde on Blonde. That is stunningly prolific output, both in quality and in quantity. John is in a basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on a pavement thinking about the government. The man in a trench coat batch out laid off. Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, did something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. You better duck down the alleyway looking for a new friend. The man in a coonskin cap in a pig pen wants $11 bills. You only got 10. And he was just getting started. And we're just getting started, too. I'm Christian Swain, and this is the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Come on back, because we got a lot more for you in Episode 6. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? 
Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Sound by John Michael Berry. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.